Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You think about the person in your life when you started believing you more than anyone else. They're the ones that made the sacrifice. When I walk out, my old man's next to me. They're not just looking at you, they're looking at what made you. I want them talking about our fucking game. I want them talking about us. Oh, enjoy your lunch, 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 lunch. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm joined by my sidekick and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Hello, Wendy. And our tactics guy, and a man I just witnessed brushing his beard. It's Nathan O'Clock. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> oh, that's me. That is me. Giving away the trade secrets, Don't, Nathan. It, it just naturally grows in this completely super <laughs> handsome and rugged line, naturally, because that's my actual jaw, thanks. I don't have to shape it at all. That's just how it is. I don't need to shave my neck. I don't grow any hair on my neck or, or above my beard line. This is just how it grows naturally. Thanks. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Uh, Ethan Lucas says, my question is regarding the intro to the podcast. What would happen if Bardi ever stopped being your sidekick and or best friend, Wendy? And what if Nathan was the replacement in one or both of these roles? Would you have a pod explaining the new situation or would you lie to our ears every time in the intro moving forward? Obviously, this is a bit of a nonsensical, unserious question, but I've been wondering this for several years (laughs) on and off in my own mind. It seems a decent week to ask, maybe... Um, if it's too personal or you don't have time to address it, I understand. Friendship ended um, with Bardi. Now Nathan's <laughs> best friend. I was literally going to say that. Uh, sorry, mate. What would need to happen? Like, what, 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 it would have to be pretty bad for for me to be like removed. Some sort I, of hill I, that I, won't I, come down, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't drug tweet anymore. I'm very, very careful there. And oh, yeah. um, I'm a nice person, so I would never do anything to 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 fracture this. Plus, now we're like a legal entity, the three of us. It would be even more complicated. It, oh, it would be like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in the courts. It would there'd be shit going <laughs> all over the place. I'm gonna uh, buy a bot army to tweet uh, on my defence at every opportunity. <laughs> oh my god, amazing! Um, I mean, we should, we should probably clarify that. Um, I love Bardi dearly. He's he's certainly one of my favourite people, but he's not actually my best friend. That that is just all and always has been a silly little joke. 
Uh, but he's very much my sidekick and will always be my sidekick. Did you know that first bit, Buddy, or is that news to you just now? I've, I've always suspected it. I've, I've suspected <laughs> it. He's, he's, my, he's my best friend, but I'm just not his. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. oh, can't believe, I can't believe people have, have witnessed this, this breakup. <laughs> Well, people are finally um, realizing the kind of person you are and how you just yeah. create narratives yeah. to suit in podcast intros. It's, it's sickening, you snake. <laughs> I am a snake. It's true. It's true. Um, Ethan, I hope we did that did that justice. And I, I, the fact that you've been thinking about it on and off for several years mm. is um, in equal parts sweet and, and strange. Um, but thank you nonetheless. We appreciate you. Uh, before we, we get on with the, the proper pod today, just to let you know, I have added the maximum discount for annual subscriptions to our Patreon. So if you are an existing ex-sub and are thinking, hell yeah, I might want to sign up for the next 12 months of that. Or if you have always wondered what it'd be like to be an ex-sub but haven't yet taken the plunge, uh, the next few days is the time to do it for the 16% discount off the annual subscription, which is the maximum the Patreon let you do. Um, so get involved. There's plenty of good stuff on there. Um, we've got a really great bit of um, update from Peter Strom, who's very kindly said that he will keep us up to date with Lucas Bergvall's progress uh, whilst he is on loan at, God, I don't even know how to pronounce his <laughs> team's name. I mean, it's terrible. Jurgardens, Jurgardens. Jurgarden. 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 Oh, that's nice. I, Thank you, buddy. That's, that's how I would go for it. I think it's pretty close. Yeah, nice. Thank you so much. So this is from Peter, and we really appreciate Peter for doing this. He says, here's an analysis on Lucas Bergal's first competitive game of 2024. The lowdown, it was a cup game versus second-tier opposition at home, and they won 2-0. The team played a fluid 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 formation. Bergval played a hybrid 8-10 role throughout his 72 minutes. He was free to roam around in the attacking phases, sometimes out the left, sometimes out the right, but mostly through the middle, always shown for the ball. With the ball at his feet, he tried to make the team tick looking for the best pass to make or take on his man when that was needed. A mix of short and long passes spraying the pitch, sometimes the one touch and sometimes with more touches to find the gap. He assisted the first goal after five minutes. He stayed up high in the middle and followed the ball, which teammate then crossed out to the left. He held his run a little bit, like Udogi would have done inside the winger and who had the ball. The winger passed the ball forward. Bergvall ran between the right back and the right centre back and made a one-touch pass into the striker. He had an overall good game where he was involved in most of Jurgen's attack. The team pressed in a 4-4-2 where Bergvall was one of the two. The standard of Jurgen was obviously a lot higher than Skurvda, the second tier team. Then Peter has kindly followed up on the second match, which went a bit viral yesterday amongst the Spurs online community. He says, I couldn't watch the second game in the cup versus a third tier side, but I've seen the highlights. For 1-0, Bergvall was in the build-up, driving on the right flank. He finds a teammate who assists another one. For 2-0, Bergvall was moving forward without the ball in the middle. He receives the pass on the edge of the penalty box and makes a neat finish in the bottom corner. For 3-0, he receives a pass in the penalty box, stops, spins around, and with the outside of the boot, splits the defence with an assist. And for 4-0, he receives the ball in his own half, moves between two opposition players, drives forward, and somehow manages to keep the ball in the box with two men trying to catch him. He pulls it back and scores with his left foot and the team wins 5-0. So the the 4-0 goal is the one that has got everyone very, very excited. 
Um, in that goal, obviously, great run through midfield. He gets into the box and there's an opportunity where he could have shot it on his left, right? And then he decides to go back across the recovering defender. And he I don't know if he gets it behind the defender or if he gets it through the defender's legs. Um, that then enables him to then cut back onto his left around the keeper. I don't think you can realistically ever try that that play. I think if, in the Premier League, if you have that opportunity to take the left foot shot, you have to take that. And if you try going back across the defender, they're going to use their trailing leg nine times out of 10 or more, 19 times out of 20 to block out that pass. So <laughs> so I don't, I'm not super excited about that goal because I want him to take the earlier shot. However, the, <laughs> the, uh, the 2-0 goal, where he arrives in the box, recognizes the space, takes the ball on the half turn and shoots immediately. That's that's what I'm excited about. That's what I want to see from him. That's what I like. I yeah, I think the game state is the is the key context there. I mean, I genuinely think by the time of the fourth goal, they are just taking the piss and he's just doing what he wants. Well, and 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 maybe he'll just hammer the ball first time with his left foot. Um, in a situation where it's nil-nil or whatever, but they're playing a third-tier side and having fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too... I know that it was pretty bad opposition, but I don't know if you guys remember, like, before Neymar joined Barcelona, there was thousands and thousands of clips of goals exactly like this, where the individual had the Mm -hmm. skill and the ability against weaker opposition to to take the shot on his stronger foot rather than have to rush it. So, you know, it's a a good thing that he has that ability, but it's not a a bad thing. It's not something to beat him with. It fills me with confidence because I think, I don't think any of our first team players could score a goal like that right now against trash opposition. So, um, so it's a good thing. Yeah. What I noticed in the clips was that he was moving between the lines um, quite early in the play and then staying there for many seconds before anyone did anything about the fact that the best mm. player of the opposition was just hanging between the lines. And I thought, yeah, that that's not going to cut it too often in the Premier League. But at the same time, like you say, Bardi, his technical quality and his bravery and willingness to try things are really, really exciting. And I think... It's a shame that he's not being tested now at a slightly higher level. It's a shame we couldn't have got him to like the Eredivisie, for example, see how he got on there. But um, at the same time, very happy for him to be doing his thing, playing nice football, showcasing his ability. And um, we get him in the summer and, and see what he can do. There's, um, there was a comment last week when, when Hewland scored six goals in six consecutive games in the Premier League. And something he never did in Serie A. So perhaps the Premier League is the Farmers League, maybe. So maybe Bergbrow will get these opportunities here. <laughs> Pretty sure the third league in Sweden is semi-professional. So, yeah. you know. Literal farmers. They, they are farmers. <laughs> it's possible that one of, one or more of the players may have Works some farmhand experience. Yeah, it's not, we, can't, we can't rule that out. <laughs> He, what do they? What do they grow in Sweden? Blueberries. He's picked lingo berries or something like that. So he's he has worked in agriculture. Uh, we had this email from uh, Mike Mastrandria, who says, "Hey guys, love the pod. My one gripe recently, and especially with the last episode, is how reactionary people are becoming." Brackets Bardi. <laughs> I didn't add the parentheses myself. I must say, um, and has been here for two transfer windows. Has us sitting fifth, united the fan base, and has pl- has us playing the most exciting football in years. And there are actually people out there that, after a few bad games of po- after a few bad games of poor form, with not even th- that poor result for the most part, people 
brackets, Bardi, are actually questioning Ange's job security. Honestly, guys, this is baffling and incredibly frustrating to listen to. Again, Ange has been here for all of two transfer windows. We were going into the season knowing it was going to be a rebuild season. We've wildly outperformed expectations, and now people's expectations, brackets, Bardi, have been recalibrated to thinking we should be better than we actually are. Take a step back, please, and look at the big picture. Who is going to come in and do what Ange has done as quickly as he has? Again, I love the pod, but would love some discussion on the recalibrating of expectations based on where we actually are versus where you guys thought we'd be at this point. Similarly, Chris Kelly said... Can we go after this? Because he's, Mike's made this personal by, by coming for me. <laughs> so do you want to do Chris or do you want me to go into Mike? Go into Mike. I mean, Chris is basically saying similar things about sort of let's let's think about where reasonably we might have expected we'd be at this stage in the season. So first of all, I wasn't the person going, could we, all throughout August, September, October. I never thought we could win the league. That was ridiculous. We were got overexcited by a little spell of good results. And the other thing, I don't think we've been playing the most exciting football in the last two months. I think our football has been pretty tepid and relying on moments or flashes of moments to do anything good. He's had um, two windows. Um, our previous manager before that had three windows and was fired when he was fourth in the league. So th- there is there is that as well to to mention. So Ange is not beyond criticism. Ange has made strange substitutions and Ange continues to make strange decisions. I'm fully behind him. I hope uh, that we improve and I, it would be great if Postacoglu is part of something brilliant at Spurs. It would be lovely. It's what I want more than anything else. But um, I'm not recalibrating my expectations. I thought it would be difficult, but it was started nicely. But it's been pretty bad this last 2024. We've had two months of 2024 and it's been pretty mixed to say the least. So yeah, Ange deserves and merits some criticism and some questioning of his tactics and, and game selection. Reactionary is a politically ideological term that means someone who's socially conservative. And I think that it's great that we showcase a mix of opinions on this podcast, buddy. <laughs> I mean, I'm literally here, we're here to talk about things that have just happened. And I, I, even though I would say I'm less of a passionate person than, than you two, I think you two swing and can have your minds changed far earlier. I think I'm probably far more rational. I, I pick an opinion and I stick with it. I don't swing back and forth like like you two have done previously in in the years we've been recording. I think it is good to adjust your, to recalibrate, as one of the writers put it, your views on the evidence available to you. And I think, so Chris is sort of saying, as Mike did, you know, think back to the beginning of the season and, and think where we were. We would have absolutely taken a top six or seven finish. And I do think that is like, to some degree, how you should assess and come the end of the season, you know, compare where, what we've done to what we expected to start. However, I also think having started the season so strongly, it is reasonable to then readjust your expectations uh, after that start based on the number of points on the board. And I likewise think that once you get a whole bunch of players severely injured for many, many weeks and players suspended, you then readjust again based on that. I think that is completely rational and reasonable and normal. And where we are now with players having come back from injury, I expect that we will and should kick on and have a strong end of the season. If we don't have a strong end of the season, I will actually be questioning why we don't have a strong end of the season. Like there, I think there would need to be some mitigating factors because we have the blueprints in place. We have the players for the most part in place. And I think there's a level of expectation now that, that Ange is set by being so 
goddamn brilliant. I mean, I think he's he's set his own expectations to some degree. Um, yeah, and, and I have. I, I think it's reasonable to question aspects of of his management. I question his um, his use of subs. Certainly, some of his starting 11s I find I found a bit baffling. I've not enjoyed his sort of square pegs in Oliver Skip and Emerson Royale. I've not enjoyed the sort of lack of minutes for youth players, which would have allowed us to test their readiness to hopefully avoid some of those square pegs. But he's a 9 out of 10 for me on this season so far. I think he's been brilliant. I think he's a breath of fresh air. I love the style of football. I think the ideas are good. The Sometimes the implementation isn't quite there, but the ideas are good. Um, and I'm really excited about the future. But I mean, I do take the point that that there's some. Uh, we need to be realistic, but at the same time, I, I think you can't just ignore what's happened before. I think you have to sort of recalibrate based on evidence. Yeah, I think we'll probably win the league on the range eventually. That's how I felt all along. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that's, that's I genuinely think how I felt all along. Nine out of ten is a lot. I I think to be edging towards a nine, we would still need to be in both cups and a one cup is just finished. But I, I think we needed to have got further in, in our cup competitions. I think losing to Fulham was, was unfortunate. And we lost to Man City. You know, every good teams lose to Man City, but I just thought that was a bit tame. But I think the League Cup exit so early on in his, mm-hmm. in his reign hurt us. And we haven't got a lot of matches, especially now towards the end of the season. I think um, like we've had two weeks now until we play Palace and I'm expecting to see much better things. Even if Poro and Destiny aren't back, I'm expecting to see an improvement in our inverted fullbacks. He's had enough time to figure yeah, out a plan with this. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really hope that the first choice players are back, but if not, then I'll be really disappointed if we see the same thing again hmm. as we did in the last match. I'd be so, so disappointed in him if, if that were the case. We had this from Jordan H. He says, with no football this weekend, I thought discussion about European football could fill the void and why Europa League might have more pros and be a better option than the Champions League. Stay with me. With the new recruitment policy and exciting academy coming through, the Europa League could be used as a platform to showcase and give experience to the outskirts players. Bergval, Valise, Devine, Phillips, Dorrington, Donnelly, Hall and more. Pardon the pun, just to name a few. This would allow these players to be around the first team and system, yet get the experience and minutes on the field that they crave. Yes, Champions League is the holy grail, but will our total squad will our squad be equipped enough to get us through knockout stages? I feel like this would require the Sons and Madisons, etc., to play twice a week, whereas in the Europa League they could rest. I also believe that under and the Europa League is a very viable and achievable route to a trophy. There is also the money aspect and the attraction of players, but I think the players we'll be looking at won't be the ones who would solely move for Champions League. Similarly, we had a question from Not So Skinny Pete, who rather more succinctly says, do you think for the development of the team we'd be better off in the Europa League rather than the Champions League next season? And I think these are uh, really interesting thoughts. I imagine Daniel Levy is craving Champions League football for obvious reasons. But Bardi, do you think there's an a interesting point here being raised by Jordan and Pete around the Europa League? I mean, I, d- I don't think... I think Europa League is a worthy competition. And this year, well, every year it seems to be getting more and more interesting. Um, this year there's like Milan in there, Roma, Atalanta, Sporting, mm. Benfica, Leverkusen, um, Valencia. You know, there are, there are teams in this competition that are really interesting and teams that could really serve our young players well. The kind of, the, the boost that Pochettino had in his early years by being able to blood players through this competition was vital to him. And I don't mind the Europa League. I think the Champions League, we're not going to win it. 
next year. If we qualify it, we're not going to win for it. The best we can maybe get is quarterfinals if we're lucky. And then what did we learn? What did we get from that? Perhaps a a youthful squad going deep in the Europa League and, and winning something could be more beneficial to us in the short term and long term. But yeah, Daniel Levy won't want that. He'll want that big Champions League money. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's been a while now since we were in the Europa League. I suppose we're in the conference Europa thing, whatever, a couple of years ago. But um, That felt so tinpot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we remember... Um, the last time we were at the beginning of what seemed to be a long-term project that we had that season where Kane got minutes in the Europa League and found his way into the first team and he wasn't the only one. And it wasn't just young players, but it was also players more on the fringes of the squad who had been brought in, like Lamella, for example. Um, but then all of the other seasons in the Europa League were a miserable experience in which we fatigued <laughs> ourselves on a Thursday night and the football was terrible and the broadcast was terrible and the teams that we played were terrible and the teams that we fielded were mostly terrible. <laughs> and um I grew to hate the Europa League as a competition and um I haven't quite forgotten that so um I get the argument but I would rather just be in the Champions League I I I fancy us to finish top 4 top 3 even still this season and uh you can always drop down into Europa League coming third in the group or whatever I just you know I want to be in the Champions League and and I think the Europa League is a a silly silly competition for us for some reason it just always is So if we were to make it into a Champions League how would you feel about sort of heavy rotation in the knockout in the group stages rather I guess it depends on our, our group a little bit I guess I guess sort of looking at the overall question again sorry to go back a, a step is that um I feel like I feel like being in the Champions League or not is gonna is gonna matter with our recruitment in the summer not just the direct funds but in terms of um bringing in a couple of first 11 quality players that I think will really push us up a level and while you know on a simple level you might say you bring players in you close off opportunities for young players to come into the squad but in my opinion um if you have a deeper squads um of sort of a first team level then when you do bring younger players in they're not just playing with their under 21 teammates or or fringe players who are, who are about to be sold or whatever so i i actually think that i actually think that you don't want to go too far in terms of leaving room for young players um i think you, <laughs> if you want to play young players play young players and and forget excuses you know just play them or whatever um so i'm not too worried about like shutting them off in, in that sense um so my answer would be not so much like oh send a rotation squad to the champions league or rotate for all the cups or whatever but to always be maximizing user squad in every game by which i mean subbing players in at 60 minutes two or three players bringing young players into every game uh making subs at half time on a regular basis rotating through just on consecutive league games even if, if you win a team with 11 players and and i know that this is something that people hate <laughs> if you win a team with 11 players and you have those 11 players available the next week you don't have to play them again it's not necessarily always the best or smartest thing to do um so yeah i i i don't see as there's an A competition, a B competition. I think is it's all about continuous management through every game and all season. That that is exactly it for me as well. Um, I think if you look at the examples of where young players have been brought in to their clubs in the Premier League this season, and there are lots unusually, um, it's all been as Nathan says, as the only young player in amongst a team of experienced um, professionals. So. Uh, Eddie Howe has used Lewis Miley, who's only 17 in central midfield, alongside Gimaraish, Joe Ellington, Longstaff, etc., etc. Uh, 
Deserby has used Jack Hinshelwood, who's 18, in amongst his full-stroke teams, although Deserby is really unusual in the fact that he has constant heavy rotation, yep. uh, which I think is a blueprint that other managers should look towards. Guardiola has used Oscar Bob, who's 20, in amongst his full-strength teams. Jurgen Klopp has used Connor Bradley, who's 20, in amongst a full, otherwise full-strength team. And Eric Ten Hag has used Kobe Mainu, who's 18, in amongst otherwise full-strength teams. And that's what we should be looking towards. So when when um, Jordan lists out this array of, of young talent we've got, I imagine throwing them all at the same time would be hugely damaging. I mean, they'd get destroyed by by sort of more experienced professional teams, um, partly because they've never played together before, but partly because there's a complete lack of experience and sort of know-how in there. But bringing through one or two at a time and rotating in every game rather than for the Wednesday or Thursday night game, that's the way forward. And that's what we should have been doing this season, I believe. And uh, I think a lot of people are willing to kind of let Ange off the hook on that in the sense that it's his first season. He doesn't really understand the academy players yet. He doesn't know them as well as he might. Uh, he's still getting to know the rest of his squad. He's trying to manage squad harmony as well as develop players. But for me, I think he's had enough crises now where he could have dipped into the academy yeah. and in hindsight certainly should have dipped into the academy. Yeah, I I, I actually don't think that the, the argument that it's his first season makes sense. I think if it's your first season, that's the the opportunity where it most makes sense to play young players. And again, that's kind of what we saw of Pochettino and then he moved away from that as he mm. felt the demands were higher in the, in the first team, whatever. Um, and yeah, we, we've been at a bare bones place in the squad Um enough times and like it's also the case that we sent a bunch of players our best players young players out on loan right and you can say okay they're going to come back next season and it's time to integrate them but again we we've been in a place where our our squad has been decimated for a number of games um not just generally but also specifically in lacking a profile and we've lacked a dribbler and Yago Santiago is clearly not favoured because otherwise he would have played and so he's clearly just yeah. not seen as an option for the first team at all there's nothing he can do now right we, we decided that he's blooming too late or whatever and we'd be looking to move him on as an example I think that he you know could have could have seen some minutes maybe tried to do a job for us when we needed that profile and we didn't have it um whereas some of the ones who i think we're, we're seeing to have like more of a long-term future they've gone out on loan I yeah just on, on that point i, I feel sorry buddy so a bit of a delay here go on go yeah on, there is a bit of a delay I, I was just gonna say i just don't think any manager at the moment is is doing this youth project or using youth players every manager you listed is is because there's a huge crisis um klopp is playing youngsters because either it's either that or he's putting in ian rush and peter beardsley there's no there's nobody left and it's either because there's no bodies, they're going to the kids, or they've got no other option. There's no choice left. So Ted Hag is having to turn to these kids because there's nothing else that, that suits there. I think we're right to criticise Postacoglu for not using these youngsters. And to be honest with you, I think no matter what European competition we qualify for, it's the same thing is going to happen. These players aren't going to get minutes. We've said this now. I've been, I've been on podcasts now with you, Wendy, for I don't know, 13, 14 years. And we've always said why they're not using youth players. And that's all the way through every single manager. The only ones that do it are those that don't care. I've got nothing left to do. So they're Sherwood. They just put them in to prove a point to kind of upset the kind of hierarchy in the first team players. 
or they've got no choice. They've got no choice to do it but play a youth player. I just don't see Postacoglu changing that. So the only way we're ever going to see these players in the Spurs show is if we're in the Conference League, Europa League, because otherwise we would have seen somebody by now, especially when we're playing four fullbacks across the, across the, across the back line. I think the only way we're going to see it is if they do so well out on loan that it's impossible for him to ignore them any further. And that's why I'm a bit frustrated about the Jamie Donnelly situation because... So Nathan's mentioned that we loaned out some of our besties players. One of those is Alfie Devine, who essentially plays the same position as Jamie Donnelly. Alfie Devine is younger than Donnelly, but he got the loan this year. He went out to Port Vale, has now moved up to Plymouth, whereas Donnelly has sat playing under-21 football and being on the fringes of the first-team squad. What this means is Devine comes back next summer, is a whole season ahead of Donnelly in his um, perceived progression. And I imagine Donnelly will be the one who will go out to maybe a League One or Championship team and have a year out on loan, whereas Devine might be seen as ready for the Premier League. And that's through no fault of Donnelly's. He was just as ready as Devine to go out. It's through the squad's it's through the management of the squad and, and the decision makers around these young players' uh, pathways. And maybe he suffered because we needed an extra body and then has not played. So I, I feel, I really feel frustrated on his behalf that this is the way it's panned out for him. Similarly with Dorrington, I think, I think Alfie Dorrington is way more of a prospect for Spurs than Ashley Phillips, personally. That's not to hate on Phillips. I think Phillips is a, a good, solid defender who will go on to have a decent career. I don't see him in the Spurs first team. He doesn't move well enough. He's not good enough on the ball. Uh, he's certainly not good enough at carrying the ball. Dorrington is really unusual as a defender in that carrying is one of his main strengths. He's brilliant at carrying the ball forward. And I think he is a viable future Spurs first team centre-back. But he will now be behind, I guess, Phillips in the pecking order because Phillips will have had half a season of championship football under his belt. I think I feel similarly about those two to you. When has um, a loan worked for Spurs? When has a loan transfer worked for us? Other than Kane. You can't use Kane because Kane is an exception to every single rule that exists in football. I think it's really difficult to evaluate loans solely from the outsiders fans because when you listen to players talk about their experiences of being out on loan, they talk about things like uh, living alone, weirdly, having to cook for themselves, having to fend for themselves, but also what it's like to be in a, in a changing room full of guys whose livelihood is at stake. Like yeah. they're not wealthy Premier League players. They, it matters for them to win the game. It, like it, it matters for them in a financial sense as well as a sort of competitive sense. And so there are lots of sort of non-tangible benefits for loan moves. Uh, but having said that, we have had a lot of failed loans. No doubt about it. We've had some real, real bad failed loans over the last few years. And my understanding is that Simon Davis has kind of got this under control and is taking a big interest in finding the right loan clubs for our players. And certainly it seems over the last few months that things are picking up in that regard and they're being a bit more proactive about recording players where it's not working, which I'm, I'm very pleased about. Um, yeah, I'm just venting some of my frustration about Donnelly, I suppose, and, and Dorrington. But you're right about that because I did an interview with Dominic Ball maybe last year when he was when he was doing talking. He about had his a great book. loan, by the way. Yeah, he had some good loans, but he said that he was going into changing rooms where game to game mattered. It, people's mortgages and their family stability was relying on a result and the same with managers and he felt that a lot of the times he was overlooked as a youth player for the kind of more grizzled and kind of you know a bit bigger and stronger professionals 
So it is difficult to get a loan right. And the, uh, one of our most successful loans, I think, was probably Skip at Norwich, who came, who went there and did amazing things. But then he came back to Spurs and he didn't play. He didn't play. And then he's kind of stagnated again. And we've seen other loan moves for like Marcus Edwards and these kind of guys not go well. And it's just, it's really difficult for Spurs to get this loan, this loan, any club really to get loans correct. But I just do feel that Postacoglu and other managers as well, they're not willing to give you for chance unless it's um, an emergency. Skip is a, a really great example. And I think Skip is an example of where we got it right. And then where we got it wrong. So the loan to Norwich, good team, correct style, um, good learning environment, really positive season, should have come back and gone straight out to a lower Premier League team and had a season in the Prem, I think. Uh, instead, we brought him back and failed to integrate him properly. So I think his pathway was was managed quite poorly. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of others similar. We've, we've had others who've gone to the Championship and, and then sort of come back and stagnated. Um, loans are hard. It's a bit of a lottery. I'm glad to see we're, we're we're taking more of an interest in finding the right club, but it does remain the lottery. That said, I think having experience of actual competitive men's football is still critical. And although some of the players I mentioned at other clubs, uh, so Hinshelwood and um, Bradley, Maynou, Bob, some of them, um, most of them didn't have a loan. So Connor Bradley did in League One, but the rest straight into the first team without any experience of, of being out on loan. And I think that is interesting. Uh, I think it's to speak volumes of the sort of bravery of the manager putting them in there. And I, I appreciate it. And some of it is injury crisis, but some of it isn't. You know, Maynou's playing ahead of Amrabat. Bradley's often been playing ahead of Joe Gomez. Um, Lewis Miley's been playing ahead of other alternative Newcastle midfielders who perhaps aren't as good, but it's not the point. You know, there, there are other options there. We've We've just played... Oliver Skip as number eight, bordering a number ten on one occasion. Emerson Royale as an inverted right back, you know, and and as a centre back. It's uh, the decisions that managers have to make, and it's not easy, but they're, they're decisions, and, and we we get to analyse them in retrospect. I'd like to disagree on Skip. I think he played plenty of minutes when he came back, and he just didn't happen to make the jump up in level necessary. I think that we we got everything right with Skip, and that's just his only limitations as a player. I think that if mm, yeah, probably because he played went out in Norwich, played like four thousand minutes because of the championship. Came back next season, played one thousand three hundred forty nine in the league 346 in in the cups season then last season 1500 minutes plus 200 minutes in the cups like that's that's perfect in my opinion i i just think having played a full season of championship football and done well and i think he was in the team of the year pretty sure he's in the team of the year like come back and play another 4000 minutes in the premier league for i don't know the equivalent of bournemouth at that stage in my view but um you know 1500 minutes is better than better than nothing okay it, it's hard. Like this stuff isn't easy. I'm not. I'm not going to pretend it. Like if we just put the right person in place, it'll all be fixed. I think it is hard, and we have got um, a lot of good young players, and each one of them has each one of them has a different um, requirement. So it's not like one pathway works for all players. That they're, they're all going to have different requirements, um, and it's difficult. But, do you I, know I how really brave... like to see a start to get it right though, because it could save us a lot of money. But do you know how brave a manager has to be for Postacoglu just to go, I'm not going to play Emerson. This kind of, is that, for, whatever, for for all his weaknesses, he's a, a professional international footballer to not, I'm going to not play Emerson and I'm going to put a 18 year old kid in there. It takes some, it takes some real guts to do that. Some real, 
faith and trust in it. And there's very few managers I think are willing to do that and unless they've got no bodies or they don't give a shit. So I think it's, I think it's really difficult. I think Pep is the, the outlier here because I think a footballer is probably better off not playing football rather than spending every single day on a training pitch with Pep learning the system, unless you're Calvin Phillips. So I think, I think that's, that's different, but for Postacoglu to, to say say Poro and Destiny's not fit, there's no way he's gonna go. I'm not gonna play Emerson. I'm gonna play a kid. It just it just won't happen. He there's too much. There's too much on the line for him. I agree that that it requires a, a what is currently an outstanding level of bravery. But I think that that Postacoglu has set his own standards with the bravery he expects from his players, from the bravery that he approaches games with tactically, and that he simply just needs to continue that bravery into his selection. And I think that that's where kind of where the disappointment comes from is that he. Um, like he's so right on so many things. He's so he's so. I feel so strongly and positively about Postecoglou. I just want him to. Th- it kind of it sets up like a small amount of disappointment with having few players. But I think that like I'm I'm really happy um, on how like institutionally we are improving with our uh, development paths for young players. And I um, I guess I, I I definitely want to see what happens with with the players returning from loan next season because I feel like those mm. are the ones that he perhaps has given the the thumb up to and says let's get them loaned now and then and then look at them next season which is again yeah in my opinion maybe a slight misuse of Santiago again a sort of questionable situation with uh, Donnelly but um, I'm I'm not writing him off is what I'm saying I guess mm. yeah I think um, Bardi's right that unfortunately it does take a lot of bravery um, I don't think we should view it that way personally I think we should normalise integrating young players and that it shouldn't be seen as brave a bit like Deserbi has like he's just like these players are good like why is it any more brave to play Jack Hinchelwood than it is to play Pascal Gross I don't know um, in my mind it's brave to play Emerson Royale inverted fullback because <laughs> he can't do it <laughs> it's it, it will be it is brave to play Oliver Skip as a borderline number 10 because he can't do it like that we've had players who've come in and done a, a objectively bad job in positions they're not used to playing because they're playing positions they're not used to playing and actually playing a young player who's accustomed to that position might have gone better and if it didn't go better then Ange has to protect them and say they're young players they'll learn this is an important learning experience um but it is it's it's not the done thing amongst elite managers um I think it's moving in the right direction. I think there's improvements. I, I really thought the enhanced substitutes bench would lead to quicker improvements mm. than this. I thought we'd see more integration of young players, but it hasn't quite been that way. Um, certainly not Spurs. And it is a frustration. Incidentally, talking of returning loanees, I uh, did a watch along with the under-21s with some of the ex-subs on our Discord. And uh, Dane Scarlett played in central midfield. Oh, really? Which was a turn-up. Yeah. Yeah, he did his uh, his first move in his Joelinton arc of, huh. of moving back into midfield. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Really interesting. And you know what? He did he did pretty I well. Know, I did not expect it, but um, yeah, he, he had a good game. He had a good game. It was Poch's second League Cup final yesterday. His first came with us in 2015 when we played Chelsea at a rain-swept Wembley. But how much can you remember from that day? Can you two remember the starting lineup that went to face Chelsea in that doomed, doomed day? God. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We we did bring Larice into the final. Larice Larice was in goal. Tick. Um, Son played left wing back. No, Son no, no, Son game. wasn't. Am I thinking of the different. semi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was the yeah. semi against against Conte. Um, this is against Mourinho. So so I remember that Dyer had a good game, but I'm wondering if he didn't Ping. start. Okay, uh, 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 but was he at centre back or, or defensive midfield? Is the is the mm. is the tricky one there? I I feel like he was at centre back because of a different injury, and he would have been playing alongside Fazio. But well, Fazio was <sighs> on the bench. Okay, um, Vertonghen. Vertonghen. Okay, nice. So we got Larice Dyer, Yan so far. Okay, uh, Walker, Walker and Rose. Walker, he scored the the own goal and Rose. Yes. <laughs> So that's the back five done. Okay. Uh, Bentaleb. Bentaleb started in centre mid. Alongside Ryan Mason. Alongside Ryan Mason, which meant who was on the bench? Oh my God. Who didn't get a start, surprisingly? Dembele. Oh, Musa Dembele. Yeah, he started <laughs> on the bench, if you can believe it. I think he was returning from injury, maybe. Um, Kane played up top in this game. Kane played up top. Um, Chadley. Chadley did play. Chadley was a wide, yep. Ericsson. Ericsson through the middle. Was was Delhi absent or did he play? Is Delhi hadn't signed yet. This was the season before Delhi. Before Delhi. So who played on the right season? Lamella. Lamella was on the bench. He came on. Was Townsend still at the club? It was Townsend. Townsend started. Okay. Nice. So it was Chadley, Ericsson, Townsend, Kane. On the bench was Dembele, Vaughan, Fazio, Davies. Davies still there. Lamella, Stambouli <laughs> and Soldado. Do you remember... This was um, this was after we'd smashed Chelsea at home. And do you remember what tactic yep. Mourinho did to to stop Spurs that day? He man marked. Um, was it Ericsson or was it Kane? It was Kane. He put um, he he played Kurt Zuma in centre midfield, yeah. who just just occupied Followed the Kane space. Around. Followed Kane around the whole pitch because he realised more, uh, more teams sh- should have employed that tactic over the years. To be honest, think about all the times like when we when we were playing counter attack football with Mourinho and Conte. That the, the the entire way that we played the game was was Kane coming yeah. towards the ball in midfield. And he, they should have man marked him. They should absolutely have marked him, but not with cursing. <laughs> <laughs> because I think uh, because after we smashed Chelsea at home, 
Chelsea totally changed changed up, changed the way they play because it was yeah. um, it was remember it was an expansive Chelsea team that Mourinho had then, and then after that he decided to revert to type and just stodge yeah. through every single match. Yeah, <laughs> I remember thinking at the time when it was Chelsea who won the other semi final, like Mourinho is not who I wanted because like at the time mm. it was like you wouldn't beat him twice in a season if you if you showed your hand in the league he would adjust and that's exactly what he did. Yeah, and then and then they yeah. played very defensively for the rest of the season. Yeah, that's right. Consistency is the key to a happy and healthy life. But what happens when you get thrown out of your rhythm? This weekend, for example, the Snake took his team to the League Cup final, which meant there was no Spurs for us to watch. What was I supposed to do with my time? In moments where you get knocked out of your stride, it's important to lean on your routine. AG1 is part of my routine. Every morning, no matter what mess is happening with Spurs or what the billion pound bottlers are doing, I've got my AG1. I take it before I've invest- ingested anything else. It helps with nutrient absorption. A scoop, a shake, and I'm ready to get cracking. If I run commute, which is something I'm doing a couple of times a month, I'll make sure I have one of my travel sachets packed, which means I get to shake one out in front of all my colleagues. If I'm at home and I've just done a long run, AG1 is one of the first things I turn to when I get home. It's part of my routine that helps me achieve my goals. Routine, routine, routine. That's the key. AG1 is so great, it's even tastier than Pochettino's tears. Get AG1 in you, mate. If there's one product you had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why we partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash extra inch. That's drinkag1.com forward slash extra inch. Check it out. Windy, you know how I hate coming on this podcast and talking about refereeing decisions after a Spurs game. You want to talk about the refereeing decision in a non-Spurs game? <laughs> Go for it. Uh, so, uh, in the cup final... Good decision. Good decision, by the way. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> I do. I do. Wow. Interesting. So, in, 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 in the cup final... Um, uh, Liverpool goal was called offside because uh, their player Endo started in an offside position and then blocked a Chelsea player's run um, who would have been potentially marking the shooter uh, Van Dijk um, you had some you had some mixed feelings about that on Twitter Wendy I found it very frustrating that uh, the officials chose this moment to penalise a team for this action, which has happened many, many, many times over the years in this sort of big stage. Um, how many times have we seen an attacking team position a player in an, in an offside position, which is chosen uh, by the officials to not be seen as active because they haven't touched the ball? And on this occasion, it is suddenly seen as active. Uh, normally what happens is they stand there to make the defending team change the position of the defensive line or change the action of the defender closest to them and nothing gets done about it. On this occasion, because they have blocked a player, and that, that, that has happened before, uh, it was determined that it was an active offside. They were they were having an active role in, in that phase of play and so it was called as an offside. I think this is the right decision. I think you should not be able to just stand and block opposition players from an offside position uh, you're gaining an unfair advantage it's very cynical but I think the inconsistency of application of that rule is ridiculous and to suddenly start <laughs> applying it in a cup final even more so 
plus it it saved Chelsea at that time, so I was annoyed for that reason as well. Whereas I was confident that Liverpool would win eventually. <laughs> um, uh, I I think that at least by the rules as they're currently written, it was a correct, it was an accurate call. Um, and we can have a discussion about whether we like the rules as they're written and whether um, whether we are increasingly writing the rules in a way that favours the defensive team in all situations and therefore discourages goals throughout the game, right? Um, but I I disagree with you that it is, it is wrong to begin accurately making good calls in a cup final, I think that the sooner you start employing the rules correctly, the better. And when we had this discussion on Twitter, someone uh, brought up Sissoko's handball in the Champions League final. And I consider that to be an example of, um, you know, I wish they had started accurately calling that in the <laughs> yeah. game rather than waiting till after to make a statement that they were no longer going to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I just, I think at this point, I'm just so frustrated by the way Premier League matches are. Uh, refereed Mm -hmm. um particularly in relation to the video assistant referee that this was like another nail in the coffin for me and i I just want them to actually get a handle of what the rules are and to communicate them effectively to the clubs and to the fans because making up new changes on the spot week to week is very unhelpful you can't you can't manage this going forward now because you're going to need to every single free kick like this you're going to have to examine every single tussle that's happening on because this it was Chilwell who was marking the Liverpool forward who was marking Van Dijk it wasn't I don't know who the Chelsea guy was but it wasn't even him it was just a run that had an impact and I think I think it's I think it's a bad decision because it's going to affect everything now every single free kick every single corner you're going to have to examine every single action that happens and it's it's just begun it's just going to become even more messy than it already is with VAR that's fair enough yeah like how many more goals are going to be pulled back because someone was in an offside position before the free kick was taken and an official will be sent over to have a look to see whether they're active or not. And then, God, most of the time when they're sent over to have a look, they're going to agree. So there's going to be a hell of a lot more ruled out goals, I think, between now and the end of the season because a precedent's been set. And like Nathan says, it means fewer goals. Like the, the reason most people go to football is to watch exciting football and see goals being scored. And we're deliberately putting in place rules that reduce the number of goals. That's that's a bad idea. We should be trying to encourage attacking play, not detract from it. It's uh, it's very frustrating, in my opinion. Okay, so speaking of the cup final, we had a question from John White a while back on Conor Gallagher. He said, seemingly, we seem to be definitely looking at a midfielder in the Gallagher profile. And I wonder if we could be looking at further evolution in the Postacoglu system. As he loves rotations, I feel like he could be moving to having two six eights in the system rather than a dedicated player for each position. The 10 is then left with a more specific role. But essentially, the rest of the team is about confusing the opposition and causing chaos by allowing anyone, any player to pop up anywhere. Would love your thoughts on this. What did you think of Gallagher yesterday, Bardi? I've not been a Gallagher fan for a long time. And yesterday didn't do anything to convince me that he's anything other than Schoeber with legs. I think I admire his <laughs> athleticism and his tenacity and his ability in transition to get in the box and in, a, in and around the box. But I think if we're going to have the ball for seventy percent of the time, I don't see what he adds to us. I just don't think he's. I don't think he's that good. Um, the only 
I think he's. I think he's very similar. I mean, he, don't get me wrong. He's an improvement on on Skip and other options in midfield. But I just don't see him being a fifty pound, fifty million pound game changer for us. I don't think he's what we really need right now. So, um, and I did think he had a good game. Even I, I, I'm quite interested to hear what you guys thought about what you think about him because he he had a game and he seems to have um, divided opinion on on all platforms. I wonder what his expected goal total for that game was because he had three, maybe four, very good opportunities in the box that he failed to uh, failed to turn into a goal. Um, and uh, you know. It's, uh, 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 a normal stat nerd might say, well, he's getting into the positions. Um, therefore, in the future, he'll score goals again. And he scored goals in the past. And in fact, historically in his career, he's overperformed expected goals. I see a player who I feel, and this is working backwards from the result- outcome of a shot, but I feel is lacking in confidence. His team are struggling. His coach is probably going to get sacked. There's talk of him being transferred away and he doesn't necessarily want to be transferred away. All of those kinds of things that might be in a player's head. He's pl- playing further away from the opposition goal this season, um, which means he's getting into the box less often and that can be affecting his confidence. I feel like, a, um, you know, a more accurate Conor Gallagher in that game scores two goals. And then we're talking about a, a truly brilliant player who's everyone super excited by and how could Chelsea possibly be so mad as to sell him? Um, He's definitely still technically not very uh, pretty, although maybe he's come on a little in that regard in the last season or so. Um, but I think that we will probably have a little rest on this profile now because we brought Bergvall in and we'll address, uh, not address, assess Bergvall in the summer and get a feel for whether we think that he is um, a first 11 player for us or not. And then we will either go, we're going to try going into the season with Bergvall or we'll go, um, no, he needs to go out on loan. He needs another season or two of development before he's ready for our level. And then we need the likes of Conor Gallagher or whoever for the time being in order to fulfill this profile need. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other <laughs> profiles we might need as or more urgently. I think it would be a real mistake to not get Gallagher in the summer if it's still an option. I, I don't think we'll get the option again. Uh, his contract is going to expire in June 2025, so his price will be at an all-time low come the summer. Uh, he is 24, so established enough that he would be an elite-level midfield signing, but still probably pre-peak. Um, I think in terms of ability to hit the box at the right time, that is a profile we're lacking in the squad at the moment. I think Ben Tancor has the ability, but we've not seen it in Angeball yet. I think Saar does it reasonably well, but his uh, performance in front of goal isn't as strong as Gallagher. Um, and I think Gallagher has the addition of... Um, uh, how do I phrase this? He is a... He's, a, he's basically a leader. <laughs> God, I hate using this kind of language, but he is a leader. Hmm. He is a ball magnet. He he saves players in tricky situations by taking the ball and, and doing doing hard work on their behalf. I think he suffered actually in the cup final by um, having a weight of expectation on him because he's probably been Chelsea's best performer this season, him and Cole Palmer, arguably. Uh, He played uh, just behind Jackson in the number 10 role. He pressed as one of the two in a 4-4-2. I think you probably get more from him playing him a bit deeper than than that. 
And so he was getting a lot of chances come his way because he was playing in that role. I feel I think he gets half those chances if he's playing a bit deeper. Um, and like Nathan says, on another day, they he buries them. I thought the one that he flicked at with his heel was a really nice improvised effort. I mean, he was a bit unlucky to see it come off the post. It was the one where he was thrown goal, where he just looked like he completely lacked confidence in that moment. Um, that was that was the big one, I think. But I really like him. I think he's a profile that's missing from the squad. I think he elevates the squad and he's homegrown and he's going to be cheaper than he would otherwise be because of his contract situation. Plus it would piss off Chelsea fans. So it's uh, hmm. I think it's a no brainer. Get him in. And you can, you can even free up the funds by selling Skip and Hoybier. There you go. Uh, Damien Muscovich says, given the discussion on the recent podcast, Inversing the Problem, I thought I'd add my observations. As an Australian and Socceroos fan, I was glad when Ange finally left as manager of a national team, as I got so frustrated by his unwillingness to modify the plan when it was clear he did not have the talent to play the way he wanted. Club football being different in that there is more time with the players and the ability to bring in talent that suits the system is even less likely to change, but hopefully he can build a squad in the coming years that really suits the way he wants the team to play and with depth to suit. While I'm equally frustrated with the way recent games have gone i believe the future is bright but don't expect any change in tactics similarly zach frank says after the wolves defeat i had a lot of talk from other podcasters along the lines of should Ange be more practical in certain situations that type of question conflates two very different things strategy or style versus tactics Ange's strategy is front foot attacking football. His strategy is not inverted fullbacks. That's just one of the many tactics mm. he's deployed during the last several years of his career. I believe on one of the podcasts earlier in the season, all or one of you described some of the different tactical tweaks you were seeing Ange make in a game from one game to the next. Moreover, Nathan's recent video was an excellent illustration of some tactical tweaks that still fit within the broader strategy. On a future episode, especially when we'd have to go through a just finished match, uh-huh, I'd be curious to hear more about the different tactics you've seen us employ throughout the season, which ones worked, which didn't and what others you think we should try in the future. In doing so, I think it'd also help quash this misconception that our strategy is only inverted fullbacks and not practical. So two similar questions phrased in slightly different ways and asking us to highlight slightly different things. But um, Barley, first, on Ange's, um, let's call it rigidity, because I think mm. that's fair, uh, his, his, his constant want to have a plan A and no plan B, which is something that Pochettino is oft criticised for. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's the right thing? Is it? Is it? Is it something that we'll get through with signings, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? I mean, every manager is a megalomaniac, and I don't think yeah. any of them swap. <laughs> None of them have a, a plan B. They don't do it. Occasionally, yeah. right at the end, they may chuck on a big man if they have a big man. Otherwise, they have a system which they play, and then they will change the characters in that system because perhaps someone's not having a good day and they'll modify it that way so i don't expect postacoglu to all of a sudden go three four three just because we don't have any fullbacks i would quite like him to do that i'm i quite enjoy it but i didn't expect him to do it but the ultimately if you don't change from your plan a you got it you still have to deliver a result and you can't use the fact that you don't have those individuals as an excuse so that that's that's the ultimately the thing you could be as plan a as you want but you have to get results with that plan A. And the moment you don't, you're rightfully questioned. Yeah, there was lots of talk about a plan B, um, specifically after the Wolves game. And I 
cannot understand what people mean or want from that, right? Because if you if you accept that the general plan A is is to be very attacking and to have a lot of the ball and to push a lot of players forwards, in a situation where you're a goal down against a very defensive team, like what are you what are you looking for? You want more defensive possession. You want to play more conservatively while you're a goal down. <laughs> like I don't know what people if they, if they mean like you know like I said Chuck Dragusin up top, then fine. But that's not really Plan B. Mm. That's a specific again like. Um, uh, Zach says Zach. Um, that's a that's a tactical tweak within Plan A is to find a target man at all costs within your squad somehow. So I don't really understand what people want from a Plan B. And and Buddy has already perfectly said like, what's Pep's Plan B? What's Klopp's Plan B? What's Deserby's Plan B? That that all and <laughs> and not just those actually. What's Mourinho's Plan B? What's Conte's Plan B? Right. All coaches have a style that they coach, and that's it. And in a rare example where you might look away from that, you can look at um, the 18-19 season at Spurs and say Pochettino moved away from his high-pressing, high-possession game to play a more direct brand of football because we didn't have an actual midfield all season. We played Winks and Sissoko. So we played the ball long and won the second ball and rushed and rushed and rushed, which is actually kind of a little bit how we've been playing the last few weeks <laughs> now under Ange. And then the next season, when he tried to return to plan A, it didn't work and it fell apart. Maybe that was more of a squad building issue. Maybe there's a cost to changing the way you play. That that being consistent long term with this is how we're going to be playing in three seasons time. So this is how we need to be trying to play now. Is is thinking about three seasons time? Um, yeah. Uh, it, um, Damien asked for specific examples. I'm not going to do a whole long, uh, you know, read through of every example because that's definitely more of a video thing. Uh, but generally, most of our tweaks have come with our um, with our build up game. We change how we we build the play up. We drop uh, into a, a two man midfield, or we invert a fullback to a more extreme extent, or we uninvert a fullback to an extreme extent, or we commit both fullbacks to the same flank all these kinds of things or we set up to do that and then we play the ball long instead these are all the different ways that we change our game what we don't seem to be changing very much is how we approach the final third um and that's been a source of minor frustration and in the um the video clip that i, I did before i talked about um and i talked about on the podcast because it's the same clip is is developing plays that start on the touchline in the opposition final third and doing a like even like studs on the ball you have to come to me i've got i've got the ball i'm on the touchline harder to do that when you're a goal down but as a general idea and then going here are four or five different automations that start from the ball on the touchline because at the moment we've got fullback makes a run into the channel and that's basically <laughs> as far as i can tell that's the majority of the playbook um so i'd like to see more of that um but yeah, I think I think that Ange has to stick with the way that he he largely sees football. And again, we tweak how high we press, we tweak how high our defensive line is, we tweak how direct we play out from the back every single game. And if he tells you otherwise, he's lying to you. <laughs> but we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think Pochettino but- is a, a really interesting a really interesting comment there because I've like all of us I've been thinking a lot about Pochettino and mm-hmm. um, watching him cry and get upset at Chelsea even though it it brought me some some happy feelings it did I there was a moment there where I felt a bit sorry for him because I've been I've been really 
Windy knows I've been one of the most kind of vocal voices about Pochettino and not wanting him back and everything else like that. But I do think something you touched upon there was interesting that he did just go, let's go, let's go kind of blitzkrieg and just smack the ball up the top and see what happens towards that 18-19 season, which served as well in the kind of one-off games in the Champions League. Yep. And then he did try and change it for the previous season. But ultimately, the the individuals that he invested in, Endombele, La Celso, Cessignon, just weren't up to it. And then everyone else crumbled that they weren't able to play the high line anymore, Vertonghen, Alderweireld and Lloris. And it was just a meeting of moments. And perhaps, yep. perhaps had we been a bit more patient with him, we may have got through it. But I just think ultimately, Pochettino's die was cast by that bad summer of we spent a hundred billion pounds on individuals that don't play for us now. That, that's ultimately was was his downfall. And the summer before, none of those zero players play for us either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Damien's point about being glad when he left as Australia manager is interesting, and I can really imagine that being the case. I think the sort of yeah. system based coaches. Uh, can really be a struggle at international level when you don't have the perfect players for your system or you, you have players that you just cannot leave out because they're they're way better than the alternative and yet they don't fit what you're trying to do. Plus, you don't get the time in the training pitch, mm. et cetera, et cetera. It's really difficult. So I can certainly imagine that uh, whilst I imagine he was a fantastic off the pitch, I can see why he would have been relieved when Ange left. Uh, Zach's point about the way people conflate strategy and tactics, absolutely, yes. Something that constantly frustrates mm-hmm. me. Very Point very well made. Nathan's highlighted some stuff just now about sort of tactical approaches to the overall strategy. I would add that he's also tweaked the, the way we press. So in some games, we've pressed in a 4-4-2 and others in a 4-2-3-1 and others in a 4-3-3. Yeah. Uh, that's been apparent and it's changed on an opponent-by-opponent basis. We've also seen... Um, some changes in formation, particularly when he's brought on subs. So we've gone to a back three with Dragushin coming on. We've gone to a 4-4-2 with Veliz coming on early in the season. So there have been some tactical approaches, but we still maintain the same strategy, which is, like you say, high pressing, um, high line, extremely attacking football, have the ball more than the opposition, try and cross the ball in a lot. That's that's the approach of, of Postacoglu and I imagine always will be. Uh, hopefully it will be more successful when we have the next layer of players he brings in and the next transfer window and the the players coming through. And as Nathan said, the complaints post-Wolves, I found a bit baffling. To be honest, I wanted him to go more Angeball (laughs) at Wolves. This is why I didn't want Emerson Royale to be playing inverted fullback. This is why I didn't want Ben Davies to be playing inverted fullback because they don't suit the system. They are square pegs in round holes. I wanted him to be going more angible and playing players more comfortable in possession so that we can have even more attacking play. Uh, and so the the idea of a plan B where you do something different, where you tear up the, the first strategy uh, is never going to happen, would be strange, particularly in his first season. Like what, what message does that send to the players? I want you to do this thing at all costs, at all times. Oh, except now when we're losing. <laughs> Like, what's that about? He's not going to do that. That's not going to happen. That's not the way he works. not the way he operates. Um, it undermines a lot of the previous good work he's done if he starts doing that all of a sudden, even if it does work in a one-off game. So I, I did find that slightly slightly strange. And I think, uh, yeah, really good point um, by Nathan there. This one to end on. Walter Johnson says, in what ways would Spurs be better if Kane has stayed? In what ways would Spurs be worse if Kane has stayed? It feels like a good time to do this question, given where where Kane is right now. Yeah, I think we'd be less allergic to trophies on the fundamental level. No, um, <laughs> no, I I think the obvious ones are 
our pressing game would potentially be at risk. Um, I did I did a video back before um, on Kane's pressing. It might have been might have been during Nuno time, where I said, "Look, obviously he doesn't have the extreme amount of energy that you would typically want from your forward to lead the press, but he's still quite intelligent with how he presses, and that does quite a lot in terms of curving of runs and covering a space and use of his cover shadow, which means the the space behind him, the way he blocks a pass off. But I still feel like the way that Ange's number nine press is kind of like a lunatic sometimes and, and Kane couldn't do that I think that um, having a number nine who you can play the ball into in midfield and and have a second pass um, this is where Richarlison has this is the only problem <laughs> with Richarlison's game in my opinion this is the area where I'm, I'm disappointed with Richarlison I, I just want a little better hold up play from him um, because I think that like we saw in the Brighton game like so good in the Brighton game like we didn't see in the City game um, like I'd like to see more of in every game because of generally teams being afraid of letting us play the ball out the back. They come out to press us. Um, although maybe that's that's probably changing now. Now teams are going to low block us anyway. For a brief period of time, teams are coming out to press us a lot. And um, when we were able to combine with Richarlison and do an up-back-through play, we were destroying them. Um, so an increased ability to do that play um, would probably have seen us beat City, I reckon. Kane would have double the amount of goals that Richarlison has and double yeah, the amount probably. of assists. He would, we would be nailed on top four games against Wolves. He would have just given us a different, yeah, a whole different edge to it. Um, Richarlison against City was 100% manhandled by Diaz and the rest of them. I think Kane would have done a better option, would have given us a bit more there. Um, yeah, would be a far better team with Kane. And also, he's another one. We, we call him Snake, but I, I'm not enjoying how everybody's just going in on him in, in Germany. He's absolutely tearing that league apart. It's not his fault. But once again, as you were saying, it's not his fault. It's not his fault Bayern aren't top <laughs> and winning it. He's doing what he does. It's just the rest of the team are, are letting him down. What's he on? 27 league goals. One more do you <laughs> want? Like, <laughs> but what it's are you Kane's talking fault. about? Yeah, yeah, it's Kane's fault that they can't get the ball towards him. Yeah, yeah. I tend to agree with Bardi on this one that what you lose in the oppressing ability, and to be honest, you do lose something, but I think he can kind of do okay as long as he gets rest. Uh, you more than make up for in the number of goals and assists. The big difference, I think, between Kane and Richarlison is the variety of finishes that Kane has in his locker. Yeah. I think Richarlison's a a perfectly acceptable finisher. He's good in the air and he's really instinctively good when he doesn't have too long to think about it. But what Kane was so brilliant at was when he had time to think about a finish, he most often nailed it still. Like that's when a lot of strikers panic and they don't know what to do. Kane had the kind of calmness and the fact that he could finish off both feet, like the variety meant that that calmness came naturally because he always had an option available to him, which I don't think Richardson has. I think um, the goals he scored against Everton were amazing and showed that he has more variety than has previously been showcased by him at Spurs. But the consistency that Kane can deliver those types of finishes is on another level. I'm going to just say something here as well. 
you may disagree. Uh, I just don't think we press that well, and I don't think we press that efficiently. And I don't, I just don't think we're a high pressing team. When you watch how other teams press, when Liverpool press, for example, I just don't see us do that or be able to carry that out. So I don't think having Kane would have impacted us that much. Give me some stats that say we're not a high press team, but I just, I, I think we play high. I think we have a high line, so we have bodies further up, but we don't have that kind of insane zealousness that we used to have under under Pochettino. I think we had at the start of the season. We we scored several goals where we won the ball really high. I remember Hoybier won a couple, um, which we scored from, <laughs> possibly. But um, we were scoring goals where we were winning the ball back really high up the pitch. And I think the injuries um, have caused us to suffer in that respect. We're still restricting the opposition to fewer passes per sequence than most other teams. But... I think we're not winning the ball as high up the pitch as we were earlier in the season. We have now dropped down into a pathetic second place in passes allowed <laughs> per defensive action behind Liverpool. But I think that's I think that's us occupying space. I know perhaps this is occupying space and pressing is perhaps the two the same thing. But on the eye test, I don't feel. Do you know? There's that kind of intake of breath when you're watching a game and your a team is pressing. When City do it to us, it's that that you can't move. You, you don't have time. I I never. I don't feel that. I don't feel that for the opposition. I never feel like the Wolves team and Burnley team and otherwise. I don't feel like we're going that we do it. We got this relentlessness to us and we're going to nick the ball. It just doesn't feel like. Yes, we have a lot of players in their half kind of perhaps cutting down passing angles but it doesn't doesn't feel like we have that that energy to us at the moment i think i think that's an understandable way to feel to be honest i think that um so ppda passes per defensive action um is kind of a measure of of intensity right um so we have the second now second highest pressing intensity but that doesn't tell you enough about your pressing um effectiveness and it doesn't tell you about the quality of the chances that you might concede after high pressing um Think about how often um, our defensive action is Van der Ven sprinting forty yards backwards <laughs> and and slide tackling the ball out of play. You know the way that we press is um, to to rush the opposition into their own play. Right, we we aren't shuttling them, we aren't forcing them wide. We're going go on, try to take on Romero. I bet you can't go on, try to foot race Van der Ven in behind. I bet you can't. And so I think that it probably feels like we are clowns juggling plates and we're always playing right on the edge of it's about to collapse it's about to fall apart and so i do think that most of the time it's successful but it doesn't feel like we're in charge it doesn't Mm. feel like um we're suffocating the opposition closing the game out dominating the game except that we keep ending games with like 70 percent possession right and so in the end it's worked it just doesn't the way the way the way um the aesthetics of it aren't as uh the sound as it as it might seem for city or back when we played under pochettino that's nicely described i think that's it because you're right a lot of times it does seem it and it it ends with one of our center backs sprinting back towards vicario yeah that's nicely put and i've just checked and the period's between the start of the season and end of November, yeah. we would top by some distance, and the PPDA was a lot lower than it is um, as the season as a whole. So, if I go from uh, start of December to now, yeah, like we've got worse by point, nearly point four 
Um, so considerable difference, and Liverpool have increased theirs significantly in that time. They've they've done a really good job of improving as the season's gone on. So yeah, makes sense. Good process, lads. You have been listening to The Extra Inch with me, Windy, my sidekick and best friend, Barney, and our tactics guy, Nathan If you like this, there's plenty more at patreon.com forward slash The Extra Inch. Production is by Nathan A. Clark. Our logo, artwork and website are designed by Trayton Miller. Our music is by David Lindmer. You can find him on Instagram at David Lindmer. Do check him out. He's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us at podcast at theextrainch.co.uk. Subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. And most importantly, be sure to tell all of your Spurs friends. Shout out to the X-Sub, we love every single last one of you. And of course, come on you Spurs. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.